You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Noelle Herhusky Schneider. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, August 22nd, 2022. Later in the program, the Madison County Prosecutor's Office will seek the death penalty against the man who killed Elwood Police Officer Noah Shanavaz. More in the bottom half of tonight's show. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. But first, your daily headlines. At the August 5th COVID-19 press conference, local officials updated the community on COVID-19 case levels and offered strategies on how to prevent contracting and spreading the virus. Indiana University Health President Brian Shockney provided updates about COVID-19 hospitalizations at IU Health Facilities in Bedford, Bloomington, and Paoli, stating that the majority of COVID-19 hospitalizations are of vaccinated individuals. Shockney also shared how people can stop the spread of the virus by masking up while in public and to get vaccinated and boosted. Uh, That our vaccinated to unvaccinated hospitalizations changed. We have high numbers of vaccinated patients in our hospital um, as compared to unvaccinated due to the variants we are experiencing currently. We know that vaccinations work, but not 100% of the time. Director of Public Engagement, Mary Catherine Carmichael, discussed city updates and reported consistent results in wastewater testing through the Blucher Pool Wastewater Treatment Plant. However, Carmichael said she expects the influx of students to disrupt the balance and increase contaminant numbers. Again, we do anticipate as um, part of the community fills up again with our returning students and other folks, uh, we imagine that uh, the Blucher Pool uh, uh, numbers will probably uh, start climbing just because there are going to be more people that will be uh, participating in that, whether they know it or not. Monroe County Health Administrator Lori Kelly inform the panel of the progression of Indiana's county cases over the course of the summer, stating that Monroe County is now in the medium COVID level. Kelly also gave updates on the Indiana Department of Education's recommendations for schools. The Indiana Department of Health school updates include no quarantine or contact tracing in K-12 schools is currently being recommended. There are no recommendations for face coverings in schools or most communities, and schools can decide how to implement masks or other mitigation strategies based on local case counts or community levels. Local journalist Dave Askins asked about the accuracy of Brian Shockney's statement of the increased rate of vaccinated individuals in hospitals and questioned how it translated to the message of getting vaccinated. Shockney replied that the current vaccine is not specifically targeted to the recent variants, but said he is hoping for more effective vaccines in the future. The Monroe County Council met in their regular session on August 9th. At the meeting, President of the Greater Bloomington Chamber of Commerce, 
Eric Spoonmore presented the city's proposal to buy property from the county where the new convention center will be built. He said the project had stalled since 2017 when the county levied a food and beverage tax to fund the new convention center, and he outlined the roles of local governing bodies in moving the new proposal forward. As you know, the county commissioners and the county council play critical roles in the convention center expansion process. The commissioners, for all intents and purposes, own the land and the convention center assets. And the county council has authority over the food and beverage tax funding mechanism. In addition, the city of Bloomington has an equally important role to play because it holds the food and beverage tax revenue that's been earmarked for the expansion of the convention center. Deputy Mayor Don Griffin described the city's vision for the exchange. Let me give you a little bit about the presentation to let you know what we're thinking. As part of the proposal, the city would take full responsibility for the expansion in exchange for the county transferring ownership and management of the convention center and supporting properties. Under this proposal, the city of Bloomington would pay off the county's existing debt on the convention center, estimated at around $2 million. Number two, contribute to the Monroe County Health Department, the opioid settlement funds received by the city, estimated to be $1.9 million over the next 18 years to support them in a more consolidated effort to address opioid addiction and recovery in Monroe County. Number three, initiate a multi-year pilot program to expand Bloomington Transit beyond city limits along the east-west corridor to provide improved access to Ivy Tech and nearby employers. The city would charge only the incremental cost of the additional services. Number four, we would assume responsibility for, for all operations and management of the existing and new expanded convention center. Now for its part, the county would do the following, or we're asking the county to please do the following. Transfer to the city all real and personal property owned by the county or building corporation comprising the current convention center and property de designated for potential future convention center use. Next, support the annual transfer to the city or its designated property management entity, the share of the annual innkeeper's tax received by the county currently used in maintaining and operating the convention center. Number three, retain its share of food and beverage tax generated outside city limits for the county's own appropriate purposes. Member of the county's Convention and Visitors Commission, Mike Campbell and Executive Director of Downtown Business Incorporated, Talisha Kopik, both said the Convention Center is unique in its ability to bring in Sunday through Thursday business to downtown Bloomington. Executive Director of Visit Bloomington, Mike McAfee, said he's had to turn away 10 different groups this year, either because the convention center was too small or wasn't available on the dates they were interested in. He said a larger convention center was needed to meet that demand. We're in the lowest tier possible. I mean, that's how small we are. We're trying to jump up a tier and be able to host groups of three or 400 comfortably. County Council Member Cheryl Munson called the food and beverage tax, which was enacted in 2017 to support the convention center expansion, a substantial and dependable source of revenue. But she worried the Indiana legislator 
might end the tax if Bloomington and Monroe County don't make progress. I am concerned that we may lose the food and beverage tax by having it sunsetted by the General Assembly. I think we all uh, might remember that this was an item of discussion, serious discussion in the last legislature. Uh, Our representatives uh, for Monroe Monroe County um, were able to to quash this uh, last year. I don't know what is gonna happen last year, but I think we need to be able to show the state legislature that we have progress moving forward. Councilmember Pete Iverson praised the presentation as a sign of collaboration. He said he appreciated that the plan focused on the values the city and the county have in common, like addressing the opioid epidemic and expanding public transit. However, Iverson also had some questions about the city's proposal. Uh, my, my first category of questions is about timing. When is a body going to be created? When is the, you know, when can we get this done? There are elections coming up that we need to be mindful of. There are all sorts of things that we need to be mindful of. The second category of questions is that of clarity. I think it's it's a good faith effort that dollar amounts have been provided in here. I think that gives the public a lot of uh, hope that this can be done. I uh, I think it, you know, that something can be done here. I'm, I, like I said before, I'm bullish on the, our ability to do this. Uh, and I just, you know, I think we can come to some clarity on some of these items um, coming forward. And then the third item is, is the cost. I think um, Ms. Munson was talking a little bit about this and I, you know, want to make sure that we are, you know, my questions revolve around some of the costs that exist, some of the valuations on properties and things of that sort that uh, obviously, you know, maybe we don't have answers for today, but then we can suss out in the future. Several other council members had questions about the plan as well. Both Munson and council member Jeff McKim wondered which specific properties the city hoped to purchase. McKim said the county had acquired more land than would likely be used to build out the convention center, and he'd be concerned about transferring all that land to the city. Council member Marty Hawk was skeptical about the legal ramifications of the exchange and whether it had a political path forward. I think that we need to make sure first step are the commissioners going to be interested. Don't take up our legal department's time doing anything if the commissioners are not going to go forward because that costs taxpayer money. Later in the meeting, the council voted unanimously to recommend a 5% cost of living adjustment for Monroe County government employees next year. Iverson said anecdotally that the raise is on par with what area nonprofits are offering their employees. You know, I've been talking to people around the community, and it seems like, based on the people I'm talking to, small sample size, you know, in bias from who I'm talking to, is that people are, are entities around town are looking around a four to five percent increase in cost of living. I think we're kind of right on what other, like, if we're going to benchmark in our community, uh, I think that we're kind of square on the nose there. And, you know, in terms of giving our employees what um, other folks are getting in the community. That 5% will be reviewed by the county commissioners, and the council may revisit it in their budget. The council unanimously approved the Parks and Recreation Department's request to use $6,500 to purchase two American with Disabilities Act compliant portable toilets for the county parks. Parks Department Director Kelly Whitmer explained the importance of accessible restrooms. This request is not a large ticket item, but it's very important to many people to go to the restroom while they're using uh, the Cars Farm Greenway or the Limestone Greenway. 
The Limestone Greenway Toilet will be installed at the Sheriff Substation and the Karst Farm Greenway Toilet will be installed at the Loesch Road Trailhead. The County Council will convene again for a work session on August 23rd. Up next, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. KiteLine airs each Friday at 5.30 p.m. on WFHB. The program is available online at wfhb.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Nearly 200 Georgia State Prison employees have been arrested for job-related crimes since the beginning of 2020, according to a list obtained by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Of the 195 Georgia Department of Corrections employees arrested through June 30th, 143 are state-certified police officers, mostly correction officers. That includes 69 arrested related to drugs. Most appear to be prison employees who brought drugs into prison, often to provide to inmates. The drug arrests include 41 for marijuana, 11 for marijuana and methamphetamine, and 9 for meth alone. In one case, two employees tried to smuggle meth inside a prison in a hot pocket frozen turnover. There were 21 arrests for battery, including four employees arrested at Rulage State Prison in Columbus for beating a handcuffed prisoner. Nine employees were arrested for sexual assault, including four assaults of prisoners at Lee Arendelle State Prison in Alto. Georgia's largest women's prison. Alabama's execution of Joe Nathan James Jr. last month may have taken longer than any other lethal injection in recorded American history. An examination by Reprieve U.S. of James's execution estimates that it took Alabama officials between three and three and a half hours to carry out the lethal injection, a duration that the organization argues violates constitutional protections against inhumane punishments. Quote, subjecting a prisoner to three hours of pain and suffering is a definition of cruel and unusual punishment, the director of Reprieve U.S., Maya Foa, said in a statement on Sunday. Quote, states cannot continue to pretend the abhorrent practice of lethal injection is in any way humane. James was convicted of murder and sentenced to die in the 1994 killing of 26-year-old Faith Hall. The daughters of Hall wanted James to spend the rest of his life imprisoned, but pleaded for him not to be executed. Nonetheless, Alabama officials pumped lethal injection into James the night of July 28th as his punishment for Hall's murder. James was supposed to be put to death at 6 p.m. that night, but it wasn't until about 9 p.m. that media witnesses were allowed to enter the execution chamber. Then, it wasn't until 9.27 p.m. that officials pronounced him dead. State officials insisted in a statement that there was nothing out of the ordinary, despite facing questions about the lengthy delay. Later, they modified their statement to say James's executioners had experienced trouble establishing the intravenous lines carrying the lethal drugs. Citing evidence from James's autopsy, Reprieve U.S. maintains that it is clear the lethal injection began long before the media witnesses were admitted into the execution chamber. The organization said James's execution team unsuccessfully tried for three hours or more, 
to insert an IV line before attempting a cut-down procedure that may have caused James to struggle, leaving him with injuries on his hands and wrists. Officials then reportedly sedated James, which may have explained why he never opened his eyes or moved while on the gurney after the media witnesses were admitted into the execution chamber. He also never spoke when asked if he had any last words. Mississippi is now the world's leader in putting people behind bars, more inmates per capita than any state or nation, according to the World Population Review. Quote, Is there a political price to be paid for foolishly sticking with a failed system that's made us the world capital of mass incarceration? Asked Cliff Johnson, director of the MacArthur Justice Center at the University of Mississippi School of Law. What's it going to take for Mississippians to realize that the mass incarceration we have carried out for decades has made us less safe rather than safer? Across the U.S., the number of those in prison in the U.S. is 16% lower today than before the pandemic, according to the Vera Institute of Justice. But Mississippi's rate is skyrocketing, rising more than 1,500 in less than six months. That population now exceeds 18,000, the highest rate since April 2020. The Madison County Prosecutor's Office announced it will seek the death penalty against the man who killed Elwood police officer Noah Shanavas. Carl Roy Webb Boards II is accused of killing the police officer during a traffic stop late last month. Boards is charged with murder, unlawful possession of a firearm by a serious violent felon, and two counts of resisting law enforcement. Madison County Prosecutor Rodney Cummings said he made the decision to seek the death penalty after meeting with Shanavaz's family. There was, a, you know, so many people trying to petitions and, you know, social media trying to acting as if they were going to leverage our office to do something. And, you know, I'm in a place where I've been around long enough. I just don't respond to that kind of stuff. I thought it might be appropriate for the the family to bury their son and grieve a little bit before we even entertain comments about where we're headed with the prosecution. We've had we've had the meeting with them. Uh, we staffed this with the Indiana prosecutors. Uh, it's the death penalty committee, complex lit- litigation committee with the most experienced prosecutors in Indiana. Unanimous decision that this is a case we should move forward with pursuing the death penalty. In 2000, Beach Grove police officer William Tony was shot and killed during a foot pursuit of a car theft suspect. The 20-year-old suspect was sentenced to death and is currently a small number of offenders on Indiana's death row for the murder of a law enforcement officer. A journalist asked Cummings why he seeks the death penalty in this case when boards would likely remain on death row for decades to come. Well... We all have our responsibilities in this process. The police, the state police did an incredible job and the resources they put in this case is, is as well as I've ever seen. And I've been involved in this process for over 40 years. I mean, it might've been at least 10 investigators, the uh, electronics, the photographs. I mean, the, 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 uh, the evidence they brought with Jeff, with, uh, Doug Carter and his resources are, I've never seen anything like it in an investigation in my career. Uh, we all have a responsibility. I, I can't make my decision based upon what may happen with appellate courts and where the law might be. 
the death sentence is the law in the state of Indiana. And if it's going to be pursued, this is the kind of case where it needs to be pursued. The family understands that. We had those discussions and our responsibility is we all have our own responsibility in this process. Mine is to pursue the death penalty in an appropriate case. And this is that case. The Indiana legislature passed a law that allows residents to carry a handgun without a permit. A reporter asked if the new law would lead to an increase in gun violence and police officer deaths. Indiana State Police Superintendent Doug Carter responded. Well, you know, the attacks on law enforcement officers, um, we've experienced two of them in two weeks, and that's um, what we signed on to do. Um, so that that is, um, is something I can't get my arms around. I just cannot get my arms around with with people like Sierra and Noah. I just cannot get my arms around that. In regards to the guns, uh, my position is pretty clear. My position remains that this was not going to cause law enforcement officers to be killed, but it was going to add a level of danger to us. And anybody that disputes that is just simply being disingenuous. So I, we, we don't know. The future is going to be able to, to, to the future will tell us. Um, but we have limitations now with what we can do with individuals that, that, that have, um, have pistols. Matt Shanavaz, the father of the slain police officer, said his son used to avidly wear sunglasses. He placed a pair of sunglasses on the podium as he read a statement. These are Noah's sunglasses. He loved those sunglasses. He has those beautiful blue eyes, super sensitive to sunlight. So if you saw Noah, you knew a pair of shades would be close by. My name is Matt Shanavaz. Noah's my firstborn son. My family misses Noah more than words can express. We want everyone to remember Noah. The guys at the PD, they would playfully tease Noah about how he wore his sunglasses. He's worn them like this since he was a little kid. If you want a small, simple way that you can remember Noah, wear your sunglasses on the back of, on the back of your head, Noah style. Indiana currently has eight men on death row. The last execution that took place in Indiana was December 2009. Boards will appear in court next September 30th. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com.
You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Abe Shapiro, Tilly Robinson, in partnership with CATS Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Cade Young. Kite Line is produced by Mia Beach. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social, Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Benedict Jones. And I'm Noelle Herhusky-Schneider. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at wfhb.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters, WFHB, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe there to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for With Good Reason, coming up next on WFHB. WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 